who would not want freedom? Who would not want freedom and everything that comes with freedom? If you're new to the Christian faith or maybe you're not yet a believer and you're weighing Christianity against other belief systems, the question I would encourage you to ask is, does it deliver? Does this religion deliver? Does this belief system deliver? Does it deliver what it promises, like life and joy and peace and freedom? Does it bring freedom? Who is not looking for freedom? Freedom from climbing the ladder, the career ladder, the new house ladder, the new car ladder, the new the thing you think you have to have to be happy. Who would not want freedom from selfishness and anger in your marriage? Not that we've ever been selfish or angry in our marriage. Vicki and I, of course, have the, the perfect marriage, just in case you were wondering. Um, who would not want freedom from addiction to your device and entertainment and what you think is going to make you happy? Who would not want freedom from the approval of other people? These are things we struggle with every single day. Christianity will bring freedom like no other thing in the world, like no other religion, no other belief system. If you follow Jesus Christ closely, if you follow him closely, trusting him above all else, he will set you free from three enslaving masters. And John introduces us to those things. He will set you free from the enslaving master of self, sin, and Satan, the evil one. Three forms of bondage. Jesus goes after, and we learn much from this exchange between him and some Jews who appear to believe in him. And he, he teaches us about how to be free from self and sin and and the evil one. I want to talk to you about those three things. Let's begin in verse 31 and look at how Jesus, if we follow him closely, not if you follow him at a distance, but if you follow Christ closely, he will free you from yourself. Jesus said to the Jews, verse 31, who had believed in him. Now, back up to verse 30 and make sure you tie those two paragraphs together. There were some who appeared to believe in him. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. At first, it looks like these are believers. But remember, in John's gospel, it's not always the case that somebody who's called a believer really is believing and trusting in Christ. You think back to chapter 2 when many, many were beginning to follow him because they saw signs and miracles that he was, he was doing. Because of the signs, they began to follow him. But Jesus, the Bible says, did not entrust himself to them because he knows what's in the heart of man. He knew their unwillingness to yield to him. So like in chapter 2, you see it again in chapter 6, just like you see it here in chapter 8. Those who appeared to believe in Jesus are not necessarily believers. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, who look like they're believing in him, who are appearing to believe in him, what's missing here is a commitment of their entire self to Christ. The essential ingredient to the Christian faith is a willingness to relinquish control of your life to Jesus. 
As this passage is unfolding, Jesus is insisting that would-be believers will count the cost. He is not multiplying converts. Jesus is not interested in transactions and multiplying converts. He's making disciples. He's making disciples. And the test that he uses is explicit in verses 31 and 32. The test that he uses to to, to help people discern whether or not they're really hearing him or willing to follow him is his word, his teaching. His gospel, if you abide in my word, watch this, look at verse 31, if you abide in my word, if you rest in my word, if you embrace my word, if you let my word control you and and you remain, abide, remain, stay in, if you persevere in hearing the gospel and applying the gospel to your life, then you'll be my disciples, then you'll truly be a disciple. The test he's using here is the test of of receiving his word. A genuine believer obeys the word of Christ. Not perfectly, not 100% of the time, but there should be a growing trajectory. There should be a clear direction in your life. A genuine believer seeks to understand the Word of God and finds it more valuable and more valuable over time. And I don't just mean by that the the pages of Scripture, but I mean the gospel that's coming out of the pages of Scripture and changing my life. A, A follower of Jesus wants the Word of Christ, the teaching of Jesus, to be more and more controlling in his life, to have more of an influence in in my life. The first thing you should know about Christianity is that Jesus is calling you to stop trusting in yourself. To stop trusting yourself. To come to the end of yourself. To stop believing your words. To stop believing your own narrative, right? Everybody's writing the narrative of their life. Stop relying on the explanation of your life. Stop, inter- stop, stop interpreting what's happening around you from your perspective and embrace God's read on your life. Embrace God's story on your life. The mark of a true disciple is to grow in obedience to the words of Jesus Christ and his explanation of who I am and what I need and where he wants to take me. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's the mark of truly being a disciple of Jesus. And you will know the truth. Look at verse 32. And it will set you free. You'll know the truth. Truth here is not a generalized philosophical principle. Uh, It's not even a list of propositions. Truth here is Jesus saying, you will know me. You'll know the truth, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So you will know the truth. What he means by that is not that you'll just know a bunch of formulaic ideas about Jesus. Jesus was God. Jesus was also man. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus, lots of good things that you could say about Jesus, but he's not rolling through a list of propositions here. He's not as concerned about propositional truth or philosophical truth as much as he is as you seeing him as the embodiment of everything there is to know about God. You will know The truth, and the truth will set set you free, means you will know me. I have come to set you free. The saving work of Jesus is here described as liberating. I I love that. Set you free. Um, 
it's, I think, the only time, or at least up to this point in John's gospel, it's the only time that the word freedom and liberation or liberating uh, is used. So it's a new idea in John's gospel. And the reason I'm saying he has come to set us free from self is because I think it's, it's really, though, it's, though you don't see it explicitly lined up in the text like, I've come to set you free from self, sin, and Satan, those three points. I want you to see it's, it's embedded in this whole uh, segment of 31 through 33. I've come to set you free from yourself. The saving work of Christ is described as liberating. The freedom that Jesus has in mind here is not personal autonomy and self-expression and personal rights. As if you and I have the ability to truly discover ourselves by looking deeper within. Jesus did not come to help you discover yourself by just pointing you to look within yourself. He's saying exactly the opposite. He is, he's talking about a freedom that you and I do not possess within ourselves, even if we attempt to live by that, that illusion, you know. He, he's coming. Look, Jesus did not come to help you unlock your true inner self. Jesus came to expose the, the emptiness and the hollowness and the claustrophobic world of the self. And he he came to say, leave the world of the self and come follow me. Put off your old self. You see this in the apostles over and over again. Put off your old man, your old nature, your old self, and put on the new self who is in Christ. You are, what Jesus wants to do is help you discover who you are supposed to be, the beautiful person that God wants you to be. Yes, you were fearfully and wonderfully made, but Jesus wants to fearfully and wonderfully remake you into the image of the only true, perfect son of God. Christianity is about the remaking of the self, not the, redis- not, not the discovery of the, the inner self that loves itself. In fact, the Bible doesn't teach that you should love yourself. Instead, it says you should love your neighbor as if he were yourself. That doesn't mean love yourself first so you can love your neighbor. That's not what, that's not what it means. It means you love to love yourself. Stop loving to love yourself and give yourself away. And when you do that, when you love your neighbor more than yourself, you'll start discovering the gospel. Verse 33, the Jews give an answer that you and I could easily give. They answered Jesus, freedom? We've never been enslaved to anybody. What are you talking about freedom for? We, we, we're not enslaved. Wow. Wow. How could, they, how could they say that? Beyond the obvious, beyond the, the obvious history of the bondage of their people, Egyptian bondage and Babylonian captivity and the present-day Roman governors who are in charge of them, how could they miss that? We're not, we've never been enslaved to anybody. We're good. What are you talking about? We're We've never been enslaved to anybody. Beyond the obvious ways in which the history of God's people have been enslaved, and the whole Bible is the story of deliverance and redemption, beyond that, look at what's happening in this very moment. In this very moment, they betray a bondage to self-justification. This is the human condition. 
as soon as you try to help me, I justify myself. As soon as you try to speak into my life, I call up my inner lawyer and say, are you busy? I need you right now. And I defend myself. I get you to defend me, and I get you to defend my righteousness. I get you to define my, defend my religious commitments. Has that ever happened to you? Do you ever use your freedom to justify yourself, your supposed freedom? In this very moment, they betray a bondage to self-justification and self-righteousness. We've never been enslaved to anybody. How are you going to help us become free? Enslaved to a religious heritage in the name of Abraham's faith? When Abraham's faith, Abraham's faith was real. And I, 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 how, is Jesus, how is Jesus maintaining his composure right now? What? Hmm. Freed from self and self-centeredness, uh, self-justifying. Next time somebody tries to help you, be careful that you don't say, I've never been enslaved to anybody. I don't need any help. Self. Jesus came to free you from yourself. Jesus came, I think this is one of the things that is being confused in present-day Christianity in different circles, that Jesus actually has come to help us discover our inner self. He's not come to help you discover your inner self. He's come to exchange. He's come to help you swap, exchange, be made new, put off, say goodbye, mortify, kill, leave behind your old self, and get a new self that only God could give you from the outside. It's called alien righteousness, alien, alien righteousness because it has to come from the outside to be put inside of you. By faith, we rest our hope in Jesus, and he does something for us that comes from the outside to the inside that we could never discover on our own. We're broken. We are in desperate need of him to change the self, and I'm going to try to make a case for that in the second point. Number two, he comes to free us from sin. So, all intermingled with the inside of, of me, inside of me, all intermingled between self is sin and brokenness and distortion and a sin condition. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He's saying it's no surprise to me that you're answering me the way that you are. Because everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Here Jesus is echoing the basic truth of Christianity that all of us, every man and every woman on this side of Eden is in bondage to sin. And he's not talking about a particular sin here or there that you may have committed last week or last month or last year or last decade. He's talking about, he has in mind a condition of sin. Uh, you know, a condition of sin that issues forth in repeated infractions. He's talking about an enslavement. He's talking about a sentence of imprisonment. Uh, he, he's, saying, he's saying that we live out of the condition of sin. The human condition is broken. Tasker, in his excellent commentary on John's gospel, says this, whoever habitually asserts his own will Priding himself on his own independence, 
following his own inclinations, only concerned to please himself, whoever lives a self-centered life is a slave, a slave of sin. These Jews are not willing to receive his word because they are, in fact, blinded by their unwillingness to embrace him as the Messiah, so much so that in verse 37, they want to kill him. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. My word finds no place in you. How could you be a child of Abraham and have murder in your heart? Abraham, did, that's not the kind of faith Abraham had. To be a true son of Abraham would be to embrace the words of Christ. In fact, there's this great verse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. It says the gospel was being preached beforehand in the life of Abraham. Like Abraham believed the gospel. The gospel from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible is the same singular message that our hope is outside of us in a Messiah who was promised and who is coming. Abraham had faith and hope and the gospel was preached in his world and in his life beforehand. It's therefore deeply ironic that these men are calling on Abraham to make their case. Only one thing could blind them from the truth of of real Abrahamic faith, and that is slavery. Slavery to self, slavery to sin. Jesus says, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin, and the slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. He's saying, I'm the son of God, I have an eternal relationship with the father, I'm trying to help you see something that you can't see, you are enslaved, you're blind. You know, there's one thing we know about slavery, the thing we know about slavery uh, that I think everybody understands very basically, if you, if, you get the, if you get what slavery means, whether we're talking about slavery in the scriptures, Old Testament or New Testament, or whether we're talking about slavery in, in, in the Civil War, uh, in, in the South, and, and the need to see slaves emancipated, what is it that we all understand about slavery? It's that slaves cannot free themselves. That's like by definition what slavery is about. A person cannot free himself can't emancipate himself, can't find the key, can't get, he's, he's, he's enslaved or shackles, feet, hands, and he can't, he can't get to the key. He can't find, he can't get out by himself. By definition, slavery says, I can't help myself. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you can't get yourself out. I came to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I came to liberate you from the bondage of sin. You have tried to set yourself free. Now pause for a moment and make some application with me. You have tried to set yourself free, have you not? You've tried before to set yourself free from things you've done wrong. You've tried to set yourself free from, from gossip or lust or hatred or anger or bitterness Resentment, sarcasm, shaming other people, things you've done, said, regretted. You've tried to set yourself free. Sometimes those things just keep coming back in the form of accusation. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that. Why'd you do that? You stink. The students would say, well, I guess I shouldn't say it in church. You suck. 
That's what they say all the time. We, we try to discourage our kids from saying that, but nevertheless, we find out that they said it at a friend's house. What the heck? The pastor's kids are in trouble again. You keep hearing these accusations. You're no good. You, you, you've tried to set yourself free, but you can't because it's not in you. It's not in you to set yourself free. Really, the heart of Christianity is to discover that I am, I am enslaved. I cannot get myself out. But Jesus comes to set me free, right? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth to follow thee. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound. I got the, I got the verses backwards, but you'll forgive me because you're letting, applying the gospel to your life, right? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in nature's sin and night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flame with light. Then my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth to follow thee. You can't save yourself. You can't get yourself out. I want to introduce you to a new friend that I met this week. I didn't really meet her in person, but I met her in her book, and I want to commend it to you. Her name is Jackie Hill Perry, and this is a book about her story out of homosexuality and out of the lesbian lifestyle and out of same-sex attraction, how God really has rescued her beautifully, and uh, it's a great read. You can get the audio version. Uh, she reads it. Not all authors read their books on the audio version, but she reads it, and I would really encourage you to hear her read her story it's, it's so powerful. Uh, just give you a paragraph to whet your appetite. She says, when salvation has taken place in the life of someone under the sovereign hand of God, they are set free from the penalty of sin and its power. In a body without the spirit, a body that she used in a way that dishonored God, she would say, in a body without the spirit, sin is an unshakable king under whose dominion no man can flee. The entire body with its members and affections and mind all willfully submit to sin's rule. But when the Spirit of God takes back the body he created for himself, he sets it free from the pathetic master that once held it captive. It is then able, that is, the body, the person, the embodied person, is then able to not only want God, but is actually enabled to obey God. And isn't that what freedom is supposed to be? The ability to not do as I please, but the power to do what is pleasing. That's a great definition of freedom. The ability to not do as I please, but the power to do what is pleasing to God, what is pleasing to the one who made me. Wouldn't you love to be set free in such a way that you now have the ability you didn't just want to, but by God's spirit and grace and through Christ, you would be able to live a life that is more and more and more and more pleasing to the Lord week after week after week, month after month after month. It's not a vision for sinless perfection. It is a vision of grace abounding and sin suffering 
and being strangled out of your life. It's a beautiful picture. It's a great story, by the way. I would commend it to you. And, um, and it, by the way, also will help us as a church to think well about how to engage those who are struggling with same sexual, uh, same-sex attraction and homosexuality um, and help us to see for them a bigger vision than just the deliverance from that particular sin. And she really goes after that well. So, free from sin. I don't know what your sin struggle is this morning. In a few minutes, we're going to pray together, so let me give you a little preview. When we pray, um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and say your sin out loud so you can breathe a sigh of relief, but I do want you to voice your own sin struggle quietly before the Lord that you are struggling with. Every person in this room is struggling with something right now. And so we want to ask the Lord to help us be free from our sin. We're going to pray in just a few minutes to do that. Jesus has come to free us from self, from sin, and here's the third thing. Verse 38 serves as a transition to the next section. I speak of what I've seen with my Father, and you do not, um, and, and you do what you have heard from your Father. I speak of what I've seen with my Father, and you what you have heard from your Father. He does not yet identify their Father. He just kind of pauses. And of course, they can't pass up the opportunity to brag about their religious heritage, and so they say, verse 39, Abraham is our father. We are, we are the Jews. We are, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says to them, essentially, if you cannot bear to hear my words, verse 43, if you cannot embrace my teaching, if you can't yield to my claims as the Son of God and the claims that God wants to put on your life, if you have murder in your heart to kill me, you're not a child of Abraham. You're, a child of, you're not a child of God. You're a child of your father, the devil, and your will aligns with his will. You are of your father, the devil, verse 44. Do you believe that there is such a thing as, as the devil, as a real, evil person who consolidates and schemes and undermines all God-pleasing things in the world? Do you believe that that there, is, there really is personal evil in the world. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of talk and a lot of influential voices that would say otherwise. But Jesus clearly believed and taught that there is a real person, there is a real devil who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. I want to I show you four things very briefly as we have time, and then I'll bring it in for a landing in just a minute. I want to show you four things we learned from Jesus about the evil one known as Satan or the devil that really just come right out of this passage. I think this passage, it, it kind of ranks up there with uh, like the temptation narrative in terms of things we learn about who Satan is and what he does. 
So let me give you four things quickly. Four things to learn from Jesus about the evil one. Number one, he is the patriarch of evil. Satan is the patriarch of evil. You'll notice that the word father is used repeatedly in this passage. You see it over and over again. Um, He says, your father the devil, your father's desires. Repeatedly he talks about about this, this patriarch of evil, and he does so because he's trying to contrast there's this great good God who's the patriarch of all goodness and, and faithfulness and righteousness and, and, and God the Father, and, and that's who Jesus lines up with. And then there's this patriarch of evil, this leader of all evil things, all devils and evil angels. In fact, all rebellion began with his hellish treason in heaven before he tempted Adam and Eve. Jesus talks about him as if he's the patriarch of evil because he is. He's the father of all evil. Ephesians 2.2 says he's the prince of evil, the prince of the power of the air. He's the one who, who really holds sway in the, in the world order. And I, by that, I don't mean that he has sovereignty over the world. God has complete and total sovereignty over, over the world. But, but right now, in, in this present darkness where there's this constant battle between good and evil, you, you don't have to wonder whether or not someone's in charge of the evil. Somebody is instigating the evil. Somebody's instigating and inspiring the evil. He's the patriarch of all evil and all things that oppose God. Secondly, he's the one who inspires. Look at verse 44. He inspires evil. Look at the language of the will and the desires language. So it's not the case that all evil is outside of you, right? We've already learned that sin lives inside of us. Whoever practices sin is a slave of sin. And if you work out your theology of sin from the New Testament, you'll discover that sin lives inside of us, is incubated in us, and it doesn't take much to grow it. So it's not just that sin is outside of you. Yes, it's inside of you as well. Sin lives in us. Um, the, 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 the apostles talk over and over again about how to put away sin and how to defeat sin. And how, so, so sin lives inside of us, but it also it's also outside of us. And the evil one is the one who's constantly inspiring a vision to connect the outside evil to the inside evil. So he tempts you. So you can't just blame it on Satan. You you, you can't blame it on just the fallen human condition. That would overstate the problem as humans are concerned. Neither can you say it's just Satan. Like, you, you, you can't say, well, man, I would have walked with Jesus this week, but the devil made me do it, right? Who was that, Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. You can't, it's more complicated than that. There, there are at least two really significant realms for you to be mindful of, in here and out here. And the person who's inspiring and inciting and promoting and appealing to the evil desires that live in here, the Bible teaches, Jesus says, your father, he's talking to them, he's trying to help them discover that they are, they are uh, far more interested in, th- their hearts are drawn to the will of their father, their father, evil father, the patriarch of evil, Satan himself, his desires. So what I'm simply saying is, you got to think about this on two fronts. There are illicit, ungodly, evil desires that live in here, 
and Satan will operate and connect and tap and appeal to because he's the father of evil desires. You can't blame it on him, but you should be aware. That's why the Lord's Prayer says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, help me out, from the evil one, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, because what's he doing? He's constantly tapping those illicit desires, inordinate desires, unhealthy desires. He's the patriarch. He's the one who incites and inspires evil desires from the outside. Third, he's a murderer from the beginning. This is definitely a reference to Genesis, to the assault that he made on Adam and Eve, and and then how that works out, and Cain then turns around and He's the first murderer, right? Who's the first murderer in the Bible? Cain, right? And where's that come from? It comes from the original assault on Adam and Eve. And so, one thing you should be sure about, Satan hates life. He takes life. He doesn't love life. He takes it. Satan takes life, but Jesus gives life. What does John's gospel teach us over and over again? Jesus is a life giver. Jesus gives abundant life. Satan hates, Satan hates the idea, Satan hates the idea that you would put away your sin and begin to flourish in life as God intended for you to flourish. Satan wants to take your life. He wants to suck the life out of you. But Jesus is a life giver. He wants to give you life. He wants to give you abundant life. Satan is full of cold-blooded malice. Might even appear, though, that he's not. It might appear as an angel of light, but he's full of cold-blooded malice. But Jesus, he is full, he is full of life-giving, unending, raging rivers that satisfy thirsty souls. The fourth thing we observe about Satan from this text is that he hates the truth because he loves deception. And let me just make a little quick personal application here. It is the nature of deception to not know how deceived you are. So don't think that you're further along in this than you might be. All of us are prone to deception. That's why we need each other. That's why you need your spouse. That's why you need the body of Christ. That's why you need people discipling you and investing in your life. That's why you need to walk with other believers who are interested in following Jesus because deception is so real. Um, I wish it were the case that we were, even as believers, no longer susceptible to temptation and deception, but it's not. We can be deceived. And it's likely the case that I don't know the areas in which I'm being deceived, right? Because that's the nature of deception. So we need each other. We need, our, we need one another. You need the church. You say, man, I can be a Christian without the church. I don't need anybody to disciple me. I got the Bible and Jesus. I'm good to go. You're not. You're not that good. Nobody is. 
Nobody is. The thief has come to kill and steal and destroy. Jesus says, I have come to give you abundant life. As we pray in just a minute, I want you to think about exchanging love of self for a rediscovered self made in the image of Jesus. Secondly, I want to ask you to think about some, a few sins in particular that you want to leave behind. And third, I want, to, I want to ask you to pray about any way that you might presently be deceived. We, should, we need each other. We need to pray together. We need to be a family together. So let me ask you to do this with me. Just um, open your, keep your Bible open. And let's, let's pray together. All right, so let's make this really practical and simple. And let's pretend like we're just, um, we're at your house together. And we've been talking about how we can grow in our faith. And we're in your community group or we're in your Bible study classroom. And we're talking about how we can ask the Lord for help in these three areas. All right, so I'm just going to guide us through this time of prayer we won't take long, but I do want you to, to have a chance to voice in your own words. You can do it quietly, um, you know, just sort of whisper it and quietly vocalize it, or you can just pray it silently. But let me lead us to pray and ask Jesus to free us from these three masters who have enslaved us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we want to be true disciples. Would you help us to abide in your word, continue in your word, remain in your word? Lord, I pray that your word would be piercing to, to the soul and spirit today and show us in each of these areas how, how much we need you to deliver us and set us free. So for a moment or two, ask the Lord to help you rediscover self. Turn away from selfishness and self-centeredness and ask the Lord for forgiveness. And then voice a prayer about a particular struggle that, that you've got on your heart and mind. It, it just won't go away. You've been thinking about it all week and you need to voice that to the Lord. So ask him to help you with that particular offense or, or maybe even a habitual sin struggle. Finally, Jesus, we want to submit ourselves to the patriarch of goodness and righteousness and love and mercy. And we turn away from the evil one. We denounce the evil one. We will... We ask you to help us to see where we've been deceived. And we pray that you'd help us no longer live under the dominion of the father of lies. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we have been set free, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that sin no longer has dominion over us. Oh, we still fight it, but Lord, now you have by your spirit given us the freedom to fight and to win and to make progress. God, help us to see the, the enemy and his schemes, his wiles. Free us. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.